Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Victor Kumar. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Boston University, part of the Mind and Morality Lab's Moral Psychology Research Group, and an author. Morality might seem like something that exists independently of humans. Things are either good or bad. The current evolutionary state humans are in should not impact this judgment. Yet, it seems that culture and evolution heavily influenced each other, and they influenced morality too. Expect to learn why Asian people get red faces when they drink alcohol, which moral emotions can be detected in chimpanzees, why sympathy can be seen as investment advice, how come some people can consume milk and others can't, whether moral grandstanding and performative empathy on Twitter can be explained by evolution, the reason for altruism existing, and much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. If you use a shared working space like a library or university's premises or a cafeteria that you go and work out of, the internet administrator can see all of the traffic that you are moving backward and forward. And this is not very secure. Also, you do not want websites to be split-testing you on prices for products that you're already buying or phishing to try and steal your information and retarget you with ads. All of this is stopped by using Surfshark VPN, and it means you can change your location and access any country's Netflix library. You're already paying for a Netflix membership, so why not get a VPN for less than $2 or £2 per month and 10x how much you've got access to. Also, there is an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee if you go to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You are not eating enough fruit and vegetables in your diet, and you know it and this is going to help. Athletic Greens contains dairy-free probiotics to support your gut health, enhance nutrient absorption, and strengthen your immune system. It's got adaptogens, which respond to influences like stress and can aid in supporting better sleep quality and lowering everyday physical and mental fatigue. Their neural support formula can support cognition, memory, and the nervous system, and their superfood complex contains antioxidants that are known to counteract the impact of free radicals that can cause cell damage within your body. They've updated the recipe 53 times over the last decade, and it is always getting better. Also, there is a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. Head to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom to get a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and that 90-day money-back guarantee. That's athleticgreens.com slash Modern Wisdom. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by House of Macadamias. House of Macadamias have partnered with 94 independent farmers, forming the single largest producer in the world, which gets them the first pick of the highest quality macadamia nuts in the region to make their one-of-a-kind snacks like their vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly chocolate-dipped macadamias. It took two years of taste testing to get these right and they've got salty sweet and spicy versions so if you are a nut lover this is something that you should absolutely check out macadamia nuts take between five and ten years to grow and have a really unique nutritional profile which has got tons and tons of health benefits also you can get a 20 percent discount off your first order if you go to houseofmacadamias.com slash modern wisdom and the code mw20 at checkout that's houseofmacadamias.com slash modern wisdom and MW20 a checkout.
But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Victor Kumar. Why would evolutionary theory at all be involved in a conversation when studying morality? It's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, the reason is because we are evolved beings. We are. Uh, we didn't create morality from scratch. We inherited it from our ancestors. We have similar capacities for morality that are shared with other animals like chimpanzees. And so the first step to understanding morality is to understand where it came from. Okay. Does morality not just come out of culture? Is this not just something that humans create out of the wishy-washy nowhere of interacting with each other? I mean, it comes out of culture too, because culture evolved. Uh, so culture evolves just like our genes do. We have information, we pass it on, information that allows us to um, succeed in our environment is more likely to be transmitted to the next generation. So when we think of morality as being evolved, it's not just genetic capacities to uh, feel pro-social emotions and care about other creatures. It's also a culturally evolved system of norms and institutions. And all of these things combine to produce human morality. So you call that gene culture co-evolution? That's right. Yeah. There's been a huge literature over the past couple of decades trying to explain how it's not just that genes evolve and culture evolve, but they co-evolve together. They influence each other's evolution. Okay. So could you give me an example of how culture has influenced genes? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of my favorite examples of this has to do with the gene that creates alcohol aversion. So there are some populations in different parts of the world that, uh, are averse to alcohol. That is, when they drink it, their face blushes. They get kind of sick. Asian and, flush. Uh, Asian flush. My business That's partner. Right. My business That's partner's right. got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And the reason for that is that the, those populations in Asia were among the first people to take domesticated rice crops and turn them into alcohol. And so there was um, this evolved cultural practice of domesticating rice turning it into alcohol, and that created a selection pressure on our genes. That is, individuals who were averse to alcohol were less likely to become alcoholics and get drunk and ruin their own lives and those of their family, and so they were more likely to pass along their genes to the next generation. No way. That's where Asian flush comes from. That's right, yeah. That is incredible. So because the sort of person who would be either neutrally or positively predisposed to consuming alcohol would be more likely to be in situations that would stop their survival and reproduction. People for whom their bodies ended up having this response where they got hot and red face and they felt sick were less likely to do that. They're less likely to take the risks and make the errors which means that they're more likely to pass their genes on. So Asian flush is an adaptive response to encourage people genetically to not drink in order to not do stupid shit while they're drunk. That's right. Yeah. Dude, you're blowing my mind. That's so interesting. That's yeah, so I good. mean, there's tons of, 
tons of examples like this. And, Keep them coming. I want to know, know some more. A, Give me some of this. Sure. Yeah. So another famous one that has to do um, with um, lactase tolerance. So, uh, sorry, lactose tolerance. So, m- you know, most mammals lose the genes for producing the enzyme lactase that allows us to digest lactose in milk. Humans are one of the only exceptions. There are some populations across the world that keep this enzyme and that allows us to continue drinking milk and dairy pro- eating dairy products through adulthood. And uh, the reason for this is, and this is just, uh, you know, it seems like the best hypothesis because of where those genes are located in the world, is that those are the places where uh, human beings had domesticated cows or goats. And um, so there was a selective advantage in being able to continue to, to consume dairy um, without getting sick. And, you know, there's been some new research on this that adds a little twist, but basically the only twist is that um, these, this really happened in places that were prone to starvation. And so the key thing was to be able to drink dairy without experiencing diarrhea, diarrhea and becoming um, uh, dehydrated. So that's, that's another example, though, of uh, a culturally evolved practice, which is raising goats and cows for milk influences the evolution of our genes to produce um, this enzyme that allows us to eat milk, drink milk, uh, eat milk, uh, drink milk and eat dairy products without experiencing dehydration. Does this suggest that all humans went through a stage of lactose intolerance and then there was a remutation which was adaptive and the people that were descended from that particular cohort became better? Or does it seem like the... Uh, the sort of loss of the lactase occurred all at the same time. And then it was stopped within certain cohorts. Does that make sense? I think the idea is that it was, uh, the original universal trait is that this enzyme disappeared in after childhood. And then just in a few populations, there evolved this ability to retain the enzyme, um, in adulthood. Does mother's milk, is that when you say after childhood, is that because you need to be able to have mm. is mother's milk like it's not dairy, but how does that work? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a form of dairy uh, that has lactose in it. And so that's why we have this gene in childhood so that we can drink mother's milk. OK, very interesting. So when we're, t- we're going to use the word morality a lot, w- what are you defining mm. as morality? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, the idea is to understand morality in the same way that we understand our uh, agricultural practices as this coevolution between culture and genes. But what is it that we're trying to explain? Um, I think there's lots of different things that fall under the category of morality. But some of the main things we'd want to explain is our emotions, the feelings that we have towards one another, like sympathy, caring about other people's suffering in and of itself. That's one aspect of morality. Another aspect of morality, and this is something that we don't seem to share with other animals, is humans have social norms. They have rules that prescribe how we should and shouldn't behave and that we enforce on other people as well. So these are two of the key key elements of human morality, emotions and norms. And we want to understand how these things evolve through biological and cultural evolution. All of the examples that you've given there are social in one form or another they involve multiple people Mm -hmm. is there such a thing as individual morality in your view 
Uh, I think that people do develop moral codes that apply to themselves. You know, people think that I have an obligation to keep myself healthy, and that has nothing to do with other people. But I don't think that that is uh, an evolutionarily ancient tendency, the, uh, the tendency to apply morality to yourself. The thing that's evolved is the social, the social aspect of our thinking and our behavior. And the more individual stuff, that just comes later. That's sort of a, a byproduct of evolved social morality. Okay, so most traits that have stuck about, except for some strange byproducts, are here because they're adaptive, right? They help us to survive and or reproduce. In what ways is morality adaptive? Yeah, well, so morality is adaptive in that it enables cooperation. You know, one of the things that we have in common with other animals, like chimpanzees, is that we live in social groups that, in which we rely on another, one another to survive. But the thing about humans is that we have lived in richer cooperative groups than other animals. So we cooperate in a wider range of ways. We cooperate when it comes to childcare in ways that other animals don't. We cooperate when it comes to fighting other groups in ways that animals don't. We, our cooperative schemes are much richer. And so we need a richer morality in order to cooperate with one another. So... In this way, is morality uh, just a set of inbuilt guidelines and rules that create effective, more effective cooperation under incredibly complex and crisscrossing situations? That's right. I mean, that's part of it. Part of it is that it's these inbuilt tendencies. But remember, because morality is the product of gene culture coevolution, it's also this culturally transmitted set of rules and practices and institutions that in each generation combined with our inborn inheritance to produce the morality that different societies construct. Presumably, this must mean that over time, uh, progressions in culture unlock particular genetic progressions and progressions genetically unlock particular cultural progressions. That is definitely the the case when it comes to the long view of human evolution over the course of tens or hundreds of thousands of years. It's a much more difficult question to know whether that is continuing to happen, whether different groups across the world are changing the morality in terms of their genetic inheritance in response to different cultural conditions. You know, it's very hard to study. It's easier to study evolution over the long scale. It's much harder to know how humans are evolving now or in the last you know, few decades or centuries. You say that received wisdom has it that just because a trait is biological does not mean that it is inevitable. But another piece of wisdom, not yet widely received, is that just because a trait is cultural does not mean that it is optional. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that um, a lot of people think that um, if something's merely cultural, if it's not part of our genes, it's not part of our built-in biology then it's something we can change. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, there's many aspects of our culture that we need for development to unfold in any kind of normal, predictable way. I mean, think about, for example, one aspect of culture that we take for granted, which is um, care by child, uh, by um, caregivers in very early, early childhood. I mean, often 
historically has come from mothers, but of course can come from other parents as well. Um, this is something that is cultural, at least in part, but uh, it's not optional. That is, human beings cannot develop uh, in a normal, functional way unless they have this important cultural input in their childhood. Interesting. So it's that's that's an interesting example because it's not optional for the child, but it is optional for the parent. Mm. It's, yeah, optional for the parents, but not optional for um, the genes. The child and for and and well and for the and for future generations to continue yeah, 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 yeah. to exist and to flourish. Yes, yeah. if you're a if you're a grandparent optimizing machine, it's no longer optional. Yeah, that was that's more about the reproduction rather than the survivability part. Is there any are there any other examples mm -hmm. of this about the sort of the optionality or lack thereof of of cultural stuff? Yeah, I mean, so one of the lessons that has come out of work in cultural evolution over the last decade or two is really the important way in which human beings are social learners. We don't come up with our ideas from scratch. We don't uh, mainly experiment with the world on our own. We learn ideas from other people. We learn ideas, especially from peers who are a little bit wiser than us. And so uh, learning from peers is having peers that are social models that you can learn from is a part of culture that's necessary for humans to develop properly, to uh, raise the next generation, um, but in, it's not optional. We need social learning from peers in order to succeed in our environments. Without social learning from peers, you would be at a severe disadvantage when it came to survival. That's right, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, that is interesting. It, it is very strange to consider that there are elements of culture that are non-optional as a part of proceeding forward. Okay, so what does the human's moral mind consist of? Yeah, so there, you know, human minds, moral minds are incredibly diverse across societies, but um, I think there are some features that each human being has in common, at least as long as they've had proper caregiving in their early childhood. Um, so one aspect is we have a rich set of moral emotions that we feel toward other people, especially within our family and our social groups. So these are emotions like sympathy, but also trust, respect. This is respect is a good one because it's something that other um, other primates don't have. You know, in chimpanzee groups, respect only flows in one direction; it flows up to the dominant male in your group. But humans have mutual respect. We, um, we, uh, we don't try to. Do I mean, we we don't always try to dominate. We have an impulse to um, have relatively um, egalitarian groups where we can, can we we stand on the same um, same level as other people in our group. So this is one aspect of of uh, evolved morality. Another aspect is moral norms. So norms like not hurting other people, helping people when they are in need of help, um, norms about um, respecting other people's autonomy. Um, there's quite a, a wide set of norms, but they all human societies all tend to have some similar types of norms in common. So we have norms, for example, about not causing harm to other people, we have norms that are about respecting other people's autonomy, 
norms that have to do with fairness. And these are interpreted in wildly different ways across societies. In some places, fairness is about equal distribution of resources. In other places, it's about giving people what they're owed, depending on how much effort they put in or what their social status is. Um, so these are two aspects of human morality. And the third one, and this is one that I think psychologists don't pay enough attention to, is the human capacity for moral reasoning. Um, this is another thing that sets us apart from the apes. We um, have the ability to change what our moral views are. And we don't do it in the way that philosophers generally reason about morality. We don't start off with first principles and apply them to specific cases. Um, a more typical way that humans reason about morality is we do something called moral consistency reasoning or treating like cases alike. You know, somebody in your group, somebody that you trust might say, well, listen, why are you treating him that way? You wouldn't want to be treated that way yourself. Or to think of a more modern example, many people come to be vegetarians or vegans or reduce their meat consumption because they think somebody in their social group pointed out like, hey, you, you really care about dogs. You wouldn't want dogs to be tortured in that way. Why, why do you think it's okay to torture pigs or cows in that way? So moral emotions, moral norms, and a capacity for moral reasoning, these are the main ingredients of evolved biocultural morality. Are there any emotions that aren't moral? Oh, yeah, plenty of emotions. So uh, fear is not uh, doesn't need to be an, a moral emotion. I mean, sometimes you can feel fear towards other people that are uh, trying to exert their moral power over you. But many times you feel fear towards, you know, uh, non-human objects or in situations that don't have anything to do with morality. Yeah. That's interesting. So what other primary moral emotions? Are there, are there the most moral emotions that we've got? Are there a, a little bundle of them? Yeah. So this is like, uh, you know, it's an open question what falls in here, but I think some of the main contenders are sympathy, um, uh, reciprocity or rather the trust, the emotion of trust that underlies reciprocity, um, respect that we've already talked about. And there's another one that doesn't get much play in Western ethics and Western thinking too, which is, um, uh, is connected with loyalty, but it's like the emotional bonding that forms between people, not just because we're part of the same group, but because we're bonded as mates or as close friends or coalition partners. When it comes to respect, you said that typically mm -hmm. uh, in terms of primates, respect flows one way, which is from the subordinate right. to the person that's in charge, the chief ape mm -hmm. or chimp or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the difference between humans and chimps that makes us require mutual respect as opposed to one-way respect? Yeah. I think it again has to do with the the richer and more egalitarian forms of cooperation that humans have relied on for hundreds of thousands of years so chimpanzee groups can they don't have to they cooperate but not very much and so they can get away with one dominant ape hogging all the resources if that's what they want hogging all the mating opportunities if that's what they want um but the 
this kind of has li this limits cooperation in a way. Like for example, if you and I are in an ape group and you're taking all the food, the fruit or the meat when we get it, then I have kind of less of an incentive to to give it my all in the next on the next cooperative run. But if, you know, we are in circumstances which humans found themselves in where they really desperately need, need, need to cooperate in order to fend off um their territory from attackers in order to access new forms of food, like for example, scavenging and hunting other animals, um, then we need to operate on terms of relative equality. If we're going to really both of us give it our all and, um, and, and cooperate to do these, these harder, more complicated tasks. So we had to give up dominance relationships in order to cooperate in a more complex, complex, and reliable way. I had David Putz on the show not long ago, and he was talking about how chimp societies are 100 times to 500 times more violent in terms of the number mm. of violent incidents than humans are, but they are 100 times less lethal. So he said mm. that, interestingly, mm. one, of the, one of the outcomes that you get from that is a huge predisposition amongst humans to avoid conflict. As soon as you move on from it being a, a pushing, shoving match that's actually going to take quite a while for you to kill somebody else, to you with mm. a heavy rock or a sharp stick or a spear or a gun or a, you know, progress on with your lethality of weapon of choice, you end up having an incentive to very, very much avoid uh, that kind of physical interaction. And I suppose that this is where dominance versus prestige from a leadership perspective comes in. <clears throat> Why in a human society would you want a complete tyrant at the absolute top unless mm -hmm. it was somehow helping you? And that means that the only way really that tyrants in human society can stick about is if they have a little cohort of sycophants or whatever around them that can help them to kind of keep everyone. And then they need a military arm and they need a, a bunch of sort of supporters below them as well. Um, when it comes down to sympathy, I remember reading, I think it was Jonathan Haidt or Robert Wright, maybe, who said uh, they put forward, they thought sympathy was investment advice. They said that sympathy suggests to humans which other humans will be the most appreciative of their efforts toward them. So I'm going to guess that sympathy helps us to redistribute resources in a more efficient manner. Is that right? I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, part of this view of sympathy that you just suggested seems to be about the communicative function of sympathy. Me expressing sympathy for you communicates something to you about uh, who's worth you know, reinvesting in. Um, but I, I also think that another aspect of sympathy is just that um, if we are really bound up together, uh, if, if my interests are bound up with yours, then it behooves me to make sure that you have enough food that you're happy that you're not going to run off and join another cooperative scheme without me. So when, you know, the, to, when, when social interaction becomes less and less of a zero sum game, when, um, your, your positive outcomes are really bound up with mine, then it, it benefits me not just in a communicative way, but it benefits me to act in ways that serve your interests because your your interests will um, serving your interests will will benefit mine. Okay, what I've got in my head here is the fact that 
in a small-scale society, sympathy makes an awful lot of choice. If you were to start mm -hmm. to scale that up a little bit more, where you are less reliant on the others in your group, less reliant on the others in your group surviving, that would suggest to me that sympathy would start to get turned down. Does that, does that seem to make sense? Absolutely. And I mean, the thing about human societies for hundreds of thousands of years is that we've lived in very small groups where you, uh, you know other people, you really are um, bound up to them in, in terms of all kinds of cooperative uh, activities. And, uh, you know, this, this may be true at least for tens of thousands of years, but certainly in the last few hundred and thousand years, we live in much larger societies where um, there aren't the same cooperative dependencies between people who are living in the same city or the same um, village as you. And so here, I think um, there really is, uh, uh, there, there isn't the same incentive to feel and express sympathy towards others. And what we've seen, I think, in, in society, societies that have persisted is that we've seen that there have evolved cultural institutions that manage the work of cooperation for us so that we don't have to rely on you and I having a personal relationship. We've got a system of laws that will punish me for, um, for hurting you and, you know, uh, a bunch of people who will enforce it in less so or more reasonable ways. If I was to steal your property, if you were some down and out person who lived in a on benefits in some house somewhere and then I came in and stole your final tin of beans or whatever it was, there is the potential that you would use laws which are uh, like legislative uh, written down norms that would then be enacted by a wing that is an exterior enforcer of those norms, the police, who would then come and say, give that tin of beans back. Not only is it theirs, but there is then this sort of um, cultural sense that somebody who is down and out is deserving of uh, not being uh, pushed around. That's why seeing videos of two guys fighting in the street feels very different to seeing a video of a guy pushing over granny. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's right. I think that's the way in which some of the functions of human morality have in recent centuries and millennia been outsourced to political legislative enforcement apparatuses. Mm. What about, are there less moral, but still slightly moral emotions? Mm. Like Did a, you have any in mind? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about the, you've got those four across the top, but there's a whole list mm -hmm. of emotions that humans, mm. that humans do have. I'm wondering whether there are secondary, if there's a secondary set of them as well. Yeah, there, so there are another set of emotions that are not really um, specific to um, that 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 motivate a specific kind of behavior, like helping people or not taking advantage of them. There's another second order set of emotions that are things like guilt on the one hand, or shame and resentment or moral anger. So these are emotions that kind of um, keep you in check by getting people by motivating people to follow the moral rules that are around because you'll impose some emo emotional cost on yourself. You'll feel guilt or shame if you violate the rules or other people will experience anger and retaliate against, against you if you, if you violate the rules. So I think of the, these emotions like shame and resentment, these are, these are 
fully fully immoral emotions. They're just a little bit different than the ones we've been talking about already. Yeah, that's that adds in another area here that I think I was missing. Shame being uh, self-flagellation about transgressing a moral norm that maybe even nobody else knew about. Uh, perhaps even something that didn't affect anybody else, a promise that you made to yourself about the kind of person that you would be. I am going to get up at seven o'clock in the morning tomorrow morning and I woke up at nine o'clock and I feel like a piece of shit or guilt mm -hmm. around um, eating a cookie or about stealing that tin of beans from granny it's a uh, an internal police system that helps that doesn't require the law and the legislation and the police to come around it, it, you do it to yourself that's right and I think that's because even in modern societies we we need both internal morality and the morality that's externalized onto our institutions. Because of course, we still have these close personal relationships with people around us who depend on us. And that's the kind of thing that shame regulates. And um, when it comes to things about which we're shameless, that's when we need the external institutions. In your opinion, is it right to say that there are good or bad emotions? I think that emotions can be used in good and bad ways. I think that uh, it's there are philosophers who argue that some emotions are inherently bad, like anger or disgust. Disgust may be one of those that you had in mind that is kind of halfway moral. Um, but I think all of these emotions have their place. I mean, anger, of course, can lead to violence. It can uh, be self-stultifying because um, expressing anger uh, may lead other people to distrust you or avoid you. But anger is also important as a motivator. I mean, it can motivate people to fight against injustice. It can motivate people to hold people responsible in their interpersonal relationships. If you don't feel anger at your wife or your husband, um, unless they're a perfect moral being, um, you're probably not going to have a functioning relationship where you are holding each other responsible and um, and, 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 you know, developing and developing a relationship in positive ways. Moral disgust is an interesting one because drawn into that mm. is, uh, all manner of bigotry and, and, and prejudice and predisposition and stuff like that. What, what role does moral disgust have? I understand the reason why looking at rotting meat or the smell of feces or open wounds, stuff like that. I understand why that would create a sense of disgust. First mm -hmm. off, it is the moral disgust system. I don't know whether you've ever looked at it from like a neurobiological, neuroscientific perspective. Is it the same system that's activated? Yeah. So this is an, this is an open question. There are people in the literature who argue on, on different sides of this issue. I don't think it's been solved yet. Um, there does seem to be um, uh, things in common between basic pathogen disgust and moral disgust. So, for example, there are studies suggest that um, that similar parts of the brain, um, the insular cortex, are activated when people experience disgust towards rotten food versus um, towards people who are dishonest or exploitative. Um, there's also research that suggests, suggests that when you um, when you're experiencing moral disgust, people, uh, people make the gate face. They do the disgusted facial expression that's typical of pathogen disgust. So that's some evidence that suggests 
it's one and the same emotion or similar variation on the same emotional system that's responding to pathogens and moral issues. But I think this is maybe one of the best cases for an emotion that is a moral emotion. It's related to morality, but it's not good. It's a bad emotion. I don't think that's right because I think that disgust has its place too. One of the things that people feel moral disgust towards is, is a class of violations that have to do with reciprocity. So things like cheating, dishonesty, exploitation, people experience moral disgust towards those things. And one reason disgust is useful as an emotion is because of what it motivates. It motivates us to withdraw and avoid and engage in distancing. And that can be a really effective form of punishment. That is, in a cooperative species like ourselves, when people are avoiding you or withdrawing from you, that is a very powerful indirect punishment because it deprives you of social connections. So I think that even moral disgust has its place too. I saw a study that came up recently that looked at the greatest status affecting criteria for attractiveness, uh, most mm. status increasing criteria. Uh, and this is on a scale of naught to eight, how many points it increases or decreases. So being a trusted group member, 3.05. Being intelligent, nearly three. Getting accepted at a prestigious university, being ex an exceptional leader, having a wide range of knowledge, being creative, always being honest, being able to speak well in public, having a job that pays well, having a good sense of humor, having an executive position, being kind, being brave in the face of danger, having a college education and being a hard worker. So that goes from like five to two and a half. And then the reverse, the most status decreasing criteria failing to perform a group task, getting dismissed from school, being lazy, being unable to control one's sexual behavior when drunk, being unreliable, acting immature or irresponsible, being mean or nasty to others, expressed racist remarks, bringing social shame on one's family, having bad manners, takes illegal drugs, getting a sexually transmitted disease, being stupid, being unclean or dirty, and being known as a thief. Being known as a thief by 20% is the biggest status decreasing criteria. And that made me think about what you were just talking about, that it is, it is inherently, it is inbuilt with the trust within the group, the moral disgust that you would have toward a thief, somebody that can't, by their very nature, cannot be trusted to have the group's interests at heart. So we need to move away from them. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I do think that this study indicates that morality being a, a a moral person continues to affect your reproductive potential. And um, I think that disgust can and underpin this exact kind of response that people have towards immoral people, which is to avoid them. You've mentioned that our closest relatives in the primate world do not have these moral emotions. Have you got any idea at what point humans would have evolved these? Yeah, so I do think that chimpanzees and bonobos have some analog of moral emotions. They do have emotions like sympathy. The key one that I think distinguishes us from bonobos is respect, mutual respect. And so um, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard. The evidence is so um, depleted and scattered to figure out when these things evolved. I think the best way to think about it is to piece together different kinds of evidence, genetic, archaeological evidence, and to try to figure out when forms of cooperation evolved. 
that would have required more equality between primates compared to the kinds of uh, cooperative activities that chimpanzees and presumably our common ancestors with them engaged in. One thing, this is something that Michael Tomasello points to, um, one thing that you see in the archaeological record is that humans around the time of when our genus evolves two million two million years ago this is a period of time where humans are starting to rely in a regular way on meat you know initially probably scavenging meat maybe even just finding bones and breaking it open and getting the marrow from them but eventually cooperating in a way to chase off other um, predators bring down prey ourselves and this was the kind of thing that we needed to do. We needed to cooperate in order to do it. We needed to cooperate in a more dependable, um, fine-tuned way to carry out a hunt. And, you know, lions can do it w- without human morality, but they're much fiercer predators than us. We needed to um, use our intelligence rather than our, um, our bare strength or speed. We also needed to use something you mentioned earlier, the more elaborate tools that humans had begun to create around this period of time. So this is this is one form of cooperation among others that seems to have arisen around roughly two million years ago when our genus Homo was evolving in Africa. And so this is likely the period of time where uh, a more f- complex and richer set of moral emotions, including mutual respect, probably evolved. I'm thinking about the relationship, the sort of gene culture coevolution element of emotions. Have you looked at any particular cultures or subgroups of people that have unique blends of emotions where maybe uh, one particular group shows a particular emotion way higher or lower than others based on whatever pressures or environment is happening around them? Yeah, one of the great studies of this, um, this is um, by uh, psychology psych- uh, psychologist Richard Nisbet and his co-author, uh, Doug Cohen. So this has to do with honor cultures. Um, so there's traditional honor cultures in different parts of the world. Um, and these are places where people in these cultures are more likely to feel anger in response to perceived insults or threats so this is a these are distinct populations where people are are experience more intense anger and uh experience it in response to these insults and threats at kind of at a more of a hair trigger and the explanation and this is a uh a cultural evolutionary explanation that nisbet and cohen give is that these are parts of the world that in which people had portable property they um had they were for example goat herders whose property could be easily stolen and they also lived in places that didn't have that institutional apparatuses those kinds of institutional apparatuses that we talked about robust legal and political institutions that would enforce property rights and so what you needed to be like in these in these honor cultures is you needed to get angry when people insulted or threatened you because if you didn't, people would think you're weak and they'd take your property. Um, so this is, you know, human morality is flexible and it can 
can and continues to change in different places and times, but this is one clear way in which moral anger seems to have been um, heightened in response to the this adaptive problem, which is keeping your property in a world where there's no institutional support. I learned a couple of weeks ago about a law in Texas, which is where I currently am, that allows mm-hmm. any two willing participants to legally fight as long as a police officer is present to act as a referee. So this is this is com- yeah. completely permitted. Both of them don't even need to give verbal agreement, although I think Washington is somewhere else that this is permitted to. But you do need to have a police officer present. And you need to say, this is what we're going to do, and this is completely legal. Uh, I also found out that the distance between the two benches in the House of Lords in the UK is one sword held out at arm's length. So okay. if you were to hold a sword out at arm's length, and that's the distance between the two. And I'm going to get, I mean, the British thing is much more vestigial, I suppose, in that it's no one's taking a sword into the House of Lords anymore. But you can still see there, right? It's like, here is a transgression, and here is one solution, which is an outlet, which allows people to use this honor culture and enact it in a particular way. And then another one is a protective mechanism to ensure somebody who tries to enact honor culture uh, can't get too carried away and chop the head off their political opponent. Mm-hmm. Yes. And one of the things that Nisbet and Cohen talk about is the way in which honor culture is typical of the American South and has persisted there, in part because the first settlers of the American South came from parts of the UK that relied on um, uh, herding animals and, you know, same conditions. Property was portable, no institutions to enforce it. Um, I wonder, I mean, I don't think that Cohen and Nisbet talk about this, but, you know, you have to wonder whether this is the ancestral condition, that these are the conditions that humans tended to live in throughout most of human history. Property was portable, no robust institutions. And really, the, it's the, the absence of honor cultures in various parts of the world that is historically unusual. Um, oh, and it's much more common to have. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that would play kind of hard to prove i suppose but that would play very much into the um jonathan height uh, theory around the, the progress that we're seeing at the moment you know if you were to live at any time in history uh even going back and I, I, everybody has this idea you know when you've spent way too much time on your phone one afternoon you think god i just wish i was a I wish i was a nomadic caveman this would be way easier i wouldn't i wouldn't be distracted by all this technology and i'd get enough sun on me and all the rest of it but maybe you would be living in a human society where there is three times the amount of anger that we have now because you don't have the external institutions or apparatus to be able to enforce norms. So it's your job. Somebody transgresses, it's your job. Right. Right. And of course, Steven Pinker has been another person who's written a lot about this and about the ways in which violence was much more a regular part of our lives until the last few centuries. What's your thoughts about altruism here? You know, it's commonly spoken about in the evolutionary psychology literature, and we've mentioned sympathy, we've mentioned sort of cooperative resources, hunting, so on and so forth. What have you come to believe about how altruism came about? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've been talking about altruism. Uh, These moral emotions are forms of altruism. There are cases where people, um, at least to some degree, care about the interests of other people in and of themselves and not just as a means 
to their own happiness or their own interests. So, uh, you know, sympathy, it's not just sympathy for you as long as you can do something for me. It's, um, you have to be able to do something for me over the long history of time for this sympathy to evolve. But sympathy now in human beings is caring about other people for their own sake. And we also even, you know, think about the norms too, enforcing norms, punishing people for violating norms. That is a kind of altruism too, because it involves um, making a personal sacrifice and maybe exposing yourself to retaliation. Um, but you care about making sure others are doing their part in, in various kinds of cooperative activities. What ways do norms differ from emotions in that case, or, or, or even culture? Yeah. Um, so one thing about norms is that they can have a really specific content. They can, you know, emotions are kind of broad in general. They're like, mm, care about this other person in some way. But norms are much more specific. They can say, well, listen, if uh, you have cooperated to take down this bison, then you get these parts and the other person gets these parts. That's what the rules say. Um, so, you know, this this kind of follows the one of the developments we've been talking about in human evolution, which is cooperation becomes richer and more complex. And the more complex cooperation becomes, the, the, the less you can rely on um, fuzzy emotions and the more you need concrete norms with very specific instructions about what you are and are not allowed to do. Okay. Are there categories of moral norms? Have you lumped them into particular buckets that are commonly found? Yeah. So Jonathan Haidt, who you mentioned before, is somebody who has tried to come up with a set of categories for moral norms. And um, I, I've offered a, a similar kind of classification in my work. So we both think that harm norms are one category. These okay. are norms that tell us harm norms that not to hurt other people or to aid them when they're in need. Um, uh, fairness norms are another category uh, we've all, all also talked about, which is things like equal distribution, giving people what they're owed. Um, reciprocity norms are another kind. These are like tit for tat. You do your what you do for me and I do what I promise to do to you. Promises kind of fall under this category. And then another really important one is um, autonomy norms, which I think Haidt talks about, but not 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 quite in in the way that uh, not not quite emphasizing this aspect of um, being free from interference and domination from other people. So um, these are some categories of norms, and each of them kind of fits with an emotion. You know, harm norms fit with sympathy. It's because we feel sympathy. Sympathy helps us conform to norms pres proscribing harm. Um, respect is the emotion that leads us to fulfill autonomy norms. It's because uh, we have mutual respect for each other that we're not going to interfere in each other's projects or try to control what what each other do. And so there are these different categories of norms and. I think what other people haven't noticed yet is that there's also these these categories of emotions, and it seems like how they all arose is that they co-evolved. The emotions are part of our genetic heritage. 
the norms are part of our cultural heritage. And it's because we've had both of them for so long that we have this system of emotions and norms that fits together. What I'm fascinated about talking about this is the, how would you say, most recent prevalence of moral grandstanding, scapegoating, uh, performative empathy, and stuff like that. Uh, it's been enabled by the internet and social media for people to be able to take positions which are um, socially praised, but it has removed most of the cost of somebody having to have a, a hard signal of authenticity that they've actually done it, right? That's the performative part. Have you considered how stuff like moral grandstanding and scapegoating and performative empathy kind of fit into this broader worldview and how all of the incentives work and stuff like that? Yeah, virtue signaling is another example in the same category that you're talking about. I think it comes down to this difference that you pointed to earlier, which is that for most of human history, we've lived in these small groups maybe uh, you know, 50 or 100 members, and we really uh, had reliable information about other people's character and what they do in hard times. And now we live in much larger societies where you don't, you know, there's not the same opportunity to know what's really behind other people's words. And so we've had to, um, people can uh, engage much more in cheap talk and, because, you know, we don't have the same uh, awareness and empathy, uh, intimacy with one another. So I think that uh, the the phenomenon of grandstanding and virtue signaling uh, arises in the society where we can't, we have uh, no firmer way to track people's reputations and their behavior, and we have to rely on what they say. And so this opens the the, the door for people to perform their moral commitments and garner sympathy and prestige and all kinds of other social goods by um by talking a big game yeah seeming like you do good rather than actually doing good because at the mm -hmm. moment most people are assessed by their opinions rather than their deeds you know we don't get to see right. what nobody gets to see what happens when you get off the, the conversation. And this is an incredibly rich, deep version of what most people put out on the internet, right? Which is either just images or just text. And uh, yet it's kind of funny that in a world in which you can get obligation-free status and goodwill, the incentive is always going to be there for people to overplay their hand about how moral they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is exacerbated by the internet and social media, which, um, you know, makes all, turns so much of our interactions into a communicative game. Uh, and it's, it's unclear, you know, what the solution to the, is to this problem, because, uh, you know, there are occasional instances where people uh, are demonstrably engaged in behavior that's inconsistent with the virtues that they've been signaling. But it's so rare, it's so rare that it doesn't change the incentive structure. There's still a massive incentive to, um, to virtue signal. Okay, so what's religion? Is religion a norm? Is religion a culture? Mm. Is it, a, there must be, it's evolved independently in tons and tons of places all over the planet. How have you come to believe uh, religion's development occurred? Yeah, and so this gets at um, thinking about, we've been talking about gene culture coevolution, 
But now the issue is more strict cultural evolution, independent of major changes in our genetic heritage. Um, so over the last, you know, we, we've talked about the moral mind, emotions and norms and how they fit together. But this moral mind also fits with our social institutions that have evolved culturally over the last um, 10 or 50,000 years. So we have various kinds of social institutions, political institutions, military institutions, family institutions. And one of the most important institutions in human history is religious institutions. So um, religious institutions have shaped our moral mind, not just in terms of religious ideology, but religious practices and rituals have changed and um, expanded our moral minds to encompass people who are from the same religious tribe. So Joe Henrik and um, Naren Zion have done some really important work on this. And one of the ideas that they put forward is this idea that religions, uh, religious institutions, the, the way that I would put it, and so this is a bit of my spin on this, is that religious institutions have been really important in the cultural evolution of morality by expanding our moral circles. You know, generally, who you feel sympathy and respect to in human history has been your, your group, your band of 100 people. And one thing that religious, religious institutions did is that they allowed us to see other people who share the same religion as members of the same extended family, brothers and sisters. And so they, this kind of cultural adaptation interacted with our moral minds to expand our moral circles, to encompass the whole religious tribe and not just our local bands. Yes, because we already had the capacity for sympathy to people uh, but because we were in a Dunbar number group of whatever, 100, that was usually what we were used to. Then we said earlier on, you get into a big city where you don't rely on other people, especially in a modern agricultural world where if you have sufficient resources, you don't actually care how everybody else is getting on. You know, even your farmer dies, there's another farmer probably not too far away that you can go to. So religion, in your view, opens up the scope of this to re-engage uh, with a broader group of people. Yes, yeah. And I think it's been, I think religious institutions predate out agriculture and have been around for a really long time and are responsible for the way in which humans, possibly starting 50 to 100,000 years ago, started to live in tribes. That is not just the band, but a group of bands that are linked together via ethnicity and dialect and religion. So this again relates to an idea in Henrik, which is and something that we maybe didn't talk enough about, which is the really way the important way in which morality has co-evolved with our knowledge and technology. So roughly a hundred thousand years ago you see this explosion in the fossil record of tools and technology, things like um spears and spear throwers and bow and arrows, but also things like sewing needles and various kinds of craft work. Um, and what seems to have arisen uh, during this period of time is that humans are beginning to live in religious, religiously unified tribes, groups of groups. And the key thing here, this is something that Henrik talks about, is that what that, what living in a tribe does is that it expands our collective brain. 
it creates a larger number of people who are communicating with each other, generating ideas, filtering each other's ideas, and um, becoming more intelligent because of our intellectual cooperation. So um, there's a you know, religion along with other social institutions has been really important in human history because it's allowed us to cooperate on a larger scale, which allows us to do things like farming and agriculture, but it also allows us to be smarter and generate more ideas and more technology. And so morality, institutional morality, that's expanded our circles has been really important for the evolution of our brains, our minds, and our intelligence. I'm just thinking about the fact that um, religion as a cultural response to the difficulty of coordinating large groups of people and that 150 or 200,000 years ago, if you're in a familial tribe of maybe 25 to 50 people, you probably don't need religion. Like, you know, you might have ideas and stories that you tell about the sun rising and so on and so forth. But the more, um, I don't know, like pro-social human element of religion, I would imagine doesn't really need to exist. You, you, there would be no adaptive reason to have that. And you already feel such a strong sense of kinship, especially if it is like a, just a pan-generational group, you know, you and 25 of your family. Mm -hmm. you, you don't need to layer any more on top of that. That's not to say that someone wouldn't have said, you know, we are the chosen ones and we have been placed here and blah, blah, blah. Right. Some proselytizing mm -hmm. caveman. But do you know what I mean? That it, it, it's, it seems like... Yes, yes. Yeah. And there's, there's a clue in the archaeological record that I said, I think supports what you're suggesting, which is that, you know, up until about 50 or 100,000 years ago, humans are confined to small portions of the African continent. And it's, it's perhaps only until we can cooperate in a larger tribe that we have the, the manpower to extend out of Africa to not just make some incursions into Eurasia, but to overpower the other human species that lived there at the time and ultimately to rely on each other in our tribe to colonize the entire world. This would suggest then that the bigger that a human society gets, the more religion would be useful. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that I think that generalization generalization is likely to have been true until some point in human history. I mean, I think we can, think of counterexamples like China is a huge country and has not been as religious as other countries in, in recent, uh, the recent century or so. Um, so I think that there, I think that, I mean, here's the thing to think that religion was a very important institution in organizing society, determining, um, the size of an effective cooperative population. But in, more recent times, there are other kinds of institutions that have been able to do the job just as well or better. And so, you know, you think of um, very authoritarian kinds of political institutions that can control people's behavior in a way that's just as or more effective than um, religious ideologies and practices. Other institutions have been um, rising in relative prominence compared to religion, I think, over the last few centuries. What have you come to believe about 
the place that religion has then, you know, uh, the collapse of grand narratives and the listlessness and the existential dread of the modern world, despite the fact that we're more convenient than ever, people are feeling lost and alone and so on and so forth. Um, it seems like religion independently arose all over the world. That would suggest that it is an incredibly useful adaptive response to the issue of being human. Now, presumably it's humans made across humans, but also will give you some individual existential comfort about the malaise of just being a, a you know, a fallen creature. What, what have you, what have you come to believe about the, the role and the reason that religion, uh, is here and sort of its, its current position in, in, and lack thereof in the modern world and what that means kind of for individual um, happiness and, and group cohesion. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that historically religion has given people a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose that has answered these deep philosophical existential questions. And it's really interesting to know why it has been fulfilling that purpose less and less effectively for more and more people over the last few centuries. I mean, you know, philosophers like me, me might think, well, the arguments against religion are so strong. Things like, you know, religious, religious theory was supposed to explain why we have plants and animals and human beings on the first place. And now we have a much better explanation in terms of Darwinian evolution. Um, so maybe it's the arguments Maybe it's things like the problem of evil, but maybe it's something uh, more practical, too. I mean, I think that people have noticed the ways in which some major religious denominations have not really been out for their own interests, have been um, exploiting and abusing members of that religion. And so it's not really the... The, the abstract philosophical arguments, but the like, you're, you're not taking care of me, and therefore I don't trust the account you give of who I am and why I matter. Um, but I think there's this real emptiness now. I don't know that we found anything that can effectively take the place of, of religion. Isn't it interesting that religion and the, the church, churches, served a, a, um, like a practical purpose? Right, like they created a foundation for um, communal belonging, a sense, a ritual, um, connection to yourself, and and not only people around you but the world around you, so on and so forth. So, like it did things, right? But it needed to create a a story around that, and what we lost really was faith in the story, not faith in the things. It was the the story of of the the rebirth or of the ascent to heaven on a winged mm -hmm. horse or of you know the path out of Israel or whatever like different culture it was that you came from. Yeah. But what was lost was something that was like pretty undeniably good practically because of yeah. issues that people had narratively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're identifying these two important aspects of religion. One is the the belief aspect and the stories in what the afterlife promises, and the other is not is it's not belief element of religion, but a practice element of religion. It's what we do together, how we come together, how we uh, engage in rituals that mark important events in our history, and um, that part still matters. 
you know, and they can, those practices and rituals can still matter, even if, even if you don't believe in the stories anymore. Um, and I'm not sure though that we've got other new institutions that, that engage in those kinds of rituals and practices that really um, resonate with people. No, I would say as well that I wonder whether part of the commitment to the practice inevitably comes out of an element of belief that you, mm -hmm. um, what, what, what happened, the baby and the bathwater both go out together and that trying to create a quote unquote, like secular religion. Uh, you talk about, I have a friend who's a, a cultural Christian. Um, so he likes to go mm -hmm. to, to church on Sunday and uh, do the sacrament and sing the songs and, but he doesn't believe. Um, and he is an, an incredible outlier. I have one friend that's like that, as far as I can tell. Uh, mm. And whether it's mm -hmm. CrossFit or yoga or psychedelics or, you know, whatever your yeah. new practice of choice, every single time there is usually some sort of story that gets put on top. And the stronger the story or the more narrative-based it is, the stronger the belief. Mm -hmm. You know, some people really mm -hmm. love CrossFit, but they don't love CrossFit as much as they love yoga. And some people that really love yoga really love it, but they don't love it as much as people that like psychedelics like psychedelics, you know, because there is mm -hmm. more story, there is more drama and right. narrative around it that seems to support the practice. I don't know, maybe that's just bro science, but it seems right to me. No, I think that's right. I mean, I was drawing this distinction between the belief and practice elements of religion. And I think you're right that these two things go together, that the, the beliefs can can um, really attach you to the practices and imbibe them with more meaning and significance. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think so much of <clears throat> so much of modern culture is practiceless. You know, it is belief and exchange of information and ideas and communication on the internet, but it it doesn't it there isn't any practice or ritual that it goes along with. Um, and, and there's certainly none that seems to unify people. I mean, you mentioned a few different things here, like yoga and CrossFit and psychedelics, and we can find others. But these these things are so fragmented. You know, it's very small, disparate communities that are engaging in each of these things, and nothing that really binds large members of our culture or country together. In your opinion, is it possible to have an objective moral code? What you've suggested here is that morality kind of is this emergent adaptive solution that humans have to the problem of cooperation at scale. And you have yeah. culture that comes along for the ride and you have norms and you have emotions. But it, like, is there a first principles, this is moral, this is not moral solution? Yeah. So we've been talking, I think, largely about the science of morality and now we're getting to more clearly into moral philosophy. Um, so I think that's the first, first natural place to go when you're thinking, is there an objective morality? Can you give me an objective moral code that gives me the fundamental principles that justifies everything else. And the thing is, philosophers have been working on that for thousands of years, and they've got approximately nowhere. We have gotten very little agreement about what the fundamental moral principles are. But I do think that there has been serious agreement about some moral issues, not fundamental principles, but certain kinds of social changes in our society that everyone or everyone that we want to have as part of the conversation thinks of as progressive things like the elimination of chattel slavery 
greater equality between men and women, um, reduced prejudice towards ethnic minorities, towards um, gay and lesbian people. There are progressive changes that I think we should be far more we should be far more confident that these changes are progressive than we are in any abstract theory that explains why these things are right or wrong. And so I think the best hope for finding some kind of objective morality, objective in the sense that we think that it's not, it's not, we not, we don't just agree, but we think other people were wrong and that we are getting, we are coming to this view from more information about ourselves and what the world is like. I think the, the, their best hopes for an objective moral philosophy is to think about how and why these progressive changes happened, the kinds that I mentioned, and to think about the psychological and cultural mechanisms behind them and whether those mechanisms can be exploited in the future to bring about future progressive changes. Things like um, addressing massive social inequality, thinking about anti-trans prejudice, um, thinking about global injustice, the way in which people from developing countries are going to suffer from climate change and other kinds of disasters. I think that we're not going to figure out whether utilitarianism is true or not, but we might be able to figure out how we've made progress in ways that we all agree are progress and how to um, build on those and to find agreement about other pressing problems that we haven't solved yet. What could you imagine as overshooting when it comes to that particular type of dynamic? That's interesting, overshooting. So, you know, addressing some of these outstanding problems, but going too far in one direction. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, <clears throat> I think that there, you know, one of the, one of the things we see in human history is expansion of the moral circle coming to care about more than just your tribe and not just your religiously unified uh, uber tribe um, i think that it is possible to go too far into this cosmopolitan direction and to think that other people that strangers matter just as much as your loved ones and your friends do i think that this is probably a tendency on the left to minimize the importance of intimate connections between friends and family and to overestimate the degree to which you have an obligation to strangers that aren't part of your family or your your tribe. That's interesting. Yes, and I do I do understand the the dynamic that you're talking about where uh, the sort of de-pedestalization of motherhood, the de-pedestalization of the family, almost being seen as some sort of um, privileged or, or oppressive institution. You know, we've seen this in like those once every couple of months insane news article titles that come up about like the family is a, a, a patriarchal institution. I, I saw one a little mm -hmm. while ago. Uh, the myth of motherhood is uh, is a myth that men created in order to keep women down and stuff like that. And you think, well, I, I, it would have been very, very difficult for motherhood and, and for humans to have survived without motherhood having been there. And it is a, the, the subtext behind that is 
motherhood is a myth. You should care about everybody the same amount that you should that you would care about your children. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are aspects of family institutions that are worth preserving. The bonds that people have towards family members, the important relationships between children and caregivers that can't be replicated, can't be outsourced to our institutions. So I think those parts of family institutions are worth preserving. I guess I also think that there are aspects of our historically evolved family institutions that are oppressive towards women, that force them to occupy subordinate social roles within the family and to assign low status to motherhood. Um, Just to interject there, that's one of the fascinating things that I've noticed is um, I I don't disagree that, you know, for a a good chunk of time, there wasn't parity in education, employment, freedom, autonomy, voting rights, you know, bank accounts, ability to drive. Remember reading this article about... Uh, the uh, concerns in the early 1900s that the bicycle would emancipate women to be able to go out on their own without the supervision of their husbands, because typically women would only be able to go out like linking up, presumably linking arms with their with their partner or whatever. Um, so I do get that. However, um, what you have seen, and that was what that article showed, is that if you push the progressivism too far, you end up... Um, how would you say, like demonizing some of the inherent beauty and wisdom that the feminine brings into the world, right? In order for you to say that motherhood, the maternal instinct is a myth that men created, it inevitably puts women who are mothers back into that second-class citizen role that they only just got emancipated from. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, a kind of feminism worth having is one that expands op- options and possibilities for women, and that doesn't um, say that o- only the new possibilities are worth having and um, traditional roles as mothers and caretakers aren't. I mean, I think that what's really the key, the key part of the feminist movement that that I think many people should agree is worth. Um, preserving and continuing is um, expanding liberty, expanding freedom of people uh, of, of all genders to, um, to occupy social roles and economic roles that they are interested in doing. You know, I think that uh, new options doesn't mean we should devalue the old ones. Yeah, I would agree. Look, Vic, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, where should people go if they want to keep up to date with the work that you do? Uh, well, they can read my new book called A Better Ape with Richmond Campbell. They can also uh, check out my website for links to new articles that I've written. I have an essay in the Boston Globe, for instance, which you might like to read. Very cool. Thanks, Victor. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, Chris. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that this Monday I am announcing the biggest episode that I've ever done on Modern Wisdom. So please be very excited because I am. Also, don't forget that there is an 83% discount, three months free and a 30-day money-back guarantee from Surfshark VPN. If you go to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom, you can get a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs and a 90-day money-back guarantee from Athletic Greens. If you go to athleticgreens.com, dot com slash modern wisdom 
and you can get a 20% discount on House of Macadamia's nuts at houseofmacadamias.com slash modernwisdom and the code MW20 at checkout. I'll see you next time.